Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. So fun story. On my way into church, I broke my iPad. <laughs> so it's going to be fun. So if I do this, you know why I got cut. So I just got a Bible too. I think I have everything. So, all right. Cool. Cool. Thank you. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I was just thinking about this. Um, just after, after the events of 2020 and really just, just living through COVID-19 and living in a post-pandemic world and all these things that we're dealing with, and especially on the scene in light of the, the conflict in Ukraine and just some of the stuff that's happening in the world right now, um, I'm honestly delighted to be in the house of God tonight. Um, I'm just really grateful for that privilege. And also, just thinking about it, just reflecting, and I realized that prior to the world just sort of imploding for us, 2020, I realized that I took coming to church for granted. Um, so I'm just, I'm just really, like I said, I'm just grateful to be here and just to have the opportunity to preach. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, definitely want to give you a warm welcome. And... Um, I just want to say, like, we want to get to know you more if you're here for the first time. We want to connect with you and just love on you and give you some radical hospitality, as we would say. Um, and I want to say that since, uh, since January, yeah, January, we're in March now, which is insane. But since January, Pastor Jonathan has been just walking us through faithfully um, a Ten Commandments series. And uh, he's taken us through Commandments 1 through 8. And first things first, before I even say anything... It takes so much work <laughs> to make one sermon, like so much work. And I'm so grateful to you, Pastor Jonathan, for every single week just being here faithfully, just unpacking the word for us. It's such a blessing. Thank you. Yeah, you can clap for that, definitely. <laughs> so, all right, so the title of this sermon tonight is What is Truth? And we'll talk about why that's the title when we get to it later on. Uh, but I want to recap just where we are in terms of what's been happening so far. So, basically, when answering the question, what is the greatest commandment that was posed to Jesus, uh, Jesus referred, he referenced a portion of scripture in Deuteronomy, a few books past Exodus. Uh, that's a part of a daily prayer that Jews would say, and it's, it's known as the Shema. And he said, in Mark 22, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So as we've learned, the first four commandments that PJ unpacked for us, they really reveal how we humans should be relating to God. Right, in terms of who he is, in terms of our posture and our time and everything, how we should relate to him. Then the next six commandments really refer to how we should relate to one another. Right? And uh, that's often summarized, you'll hear, as love God, love people. Right? So to, I'm tasked tonight with guiding us through uh, the ninth commandment. Uh, so let's, let's jump in. Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Uh, if you're using, like I am, uh, the Black Pew Bible, you probably want to turn to page uh, 61, and you'll find it there. Say amen when you're there. Amen. Cool. All right, so I'm going to read it. Exodus 2016. 
you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So, the main point of the sermon is this. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Sermon's done. Amen. Have a good week. That's it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you're thinking, okay, great, but what does that actually mean, right? So, I guess I have a question for you. So, just, just, just thinking out loud, because um, it's an actual question, interactive. Uh, when you think of bear false witness... Any words just pop into your mind immediately? You could say it, anybody. Any? What? Gossip. Gossip, that's a good one. I did not think of that one. Anybody else? That's a good one. Lie, who said it? Somebody said it. Somebody said it over there. I don't know who, but somebody said it. Which, I mean, I'm sure we're all thinking it, right? So, lie. Um, that's, that's definitely the one for me that just stuck out, right? So, in, in one of his sermons on the Ninth Commandments, uh, Pastor Tim Keller he made a really awesome point, and he said that of the Ten Commandments, this one is unique in that it's the only one that specifically deals with speech and words, right? Um, and I'll, I'll just say on a side, Tim Keller has two awesome sermons on this Ninth Commandment that if you have time, make some time, listen to them. They definitely help provide some perspective for me as well, so I recommend that you listen to them. They're really awesome sermons. And just to put your Bible down for a second, just pause for a minute, uh, just just put the whole theological analysis aside, just, just for a very simple moment, like, ask yourself a basic question. Just what part of the body is most synonymous with speech and with words? Anybody? Mouth, specifically. Tongue. Exactly, tongue, right? The tongue. So I want to take a look tonight at what God's word has to say specifically about the tongue. And when you do a quick search for tongue in the Bible, if you, you know, look it up and do a search... I just did it, and I found in a few seconds it came up with over 200 verses on the tongue, 223, I think. Um, and these are just verses that have the English word tongue in them. It doesn't necessarily talk about verses that talk about speech or anything, just specifically words with tongue in it. And there are 200 and something verses of this. It's just so many verses for such a small part of the body, right? And I can read some of them for you. For instance, in Proverbs 12, 18, it says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So rash words like sword thrusts, think of injure, damage, hurt. But on the other hand, healing, words of wisdom. So it's damage and hurt, healing, two contrasting things. Uh, another one, a really good one too, Proverbs 18.21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it, will eat its fruits. Again, like, think of the extreme contrast, like death and life in the power of the tongue. So let's unpack a little bit of the tongue's potential. And if you would turn with me uh, to the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, uh, James paints a really solid picture of the tongue's potential. Uh, if you're in the Pew Bible, like I am, that's page 1012. All right, so anybody there? All right, so I'll read it for us. It says, James 3, verses 1 to 11, says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. 
Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Really strong language. I mean, James, James is a tough book to read. It's just really strong, strong language. Um, and he... <sighs> He uses this vivid language to make a really powerful point. And what he's saying is the tongue has power over the one speaking. Right? So the tongue has power over the one speaking. He even says your words have tremendous power over your character and can shape and mold um, you, know, you. Right? So there's just so much power that the tongue has over us. For example, to prove this point, um, at weddings, right? We all, there was just an awesome wedding um, very recently. When, when, when couples make vows to each other, right, they're, they're putting into words certain things, right? They're, they're taking feelings, and they're putting into words feelings and desires. And you express your love and your desire to be faithful to one another in spite of anything that life may bring you. Um, you commit to something in those words. You, and that commitment defines your actions moving forward, right? So in a moment, your words are shaping your character moving forward in your life. You've said it, and now it's going to define what you do for the rest of your life with this person. So there's a lot of power in that. And with our tongues, right, that's positive, that's good. But with our tongues, we bear false witness also. And according to James, that's the type of thing that he mentions that, you know, can set the forest ablaze, right? This strong language that makes you afraid to just say a word, right? That's, that's James. He'll do that to you. So I guess a good question would be, back to that original question, like, what is bearing false witness? And the way, the way I'm defining it for this is false, bearing false witness uh, is misrepresenting the character of another person in a deceptive manner, a manner that devalues them, uh, demeans them, and denies them their dignity as image bearers of God. So just think about it. You're misrepresenting the character of another person in a really deceptive way, a way that demeans them, devalues them, and just denies them their dignity as image bearers of Christ. So, wow, um, oh, it's still working. That's amazing. <laughs> so I want to unpack five ways that we bear false witness, right? And, and our, these ways are very, uh, I want to say up front, like they, they speak, they should speak really clear to us in New York in 2022. And it's not Bible speak thousands of years. So these are very, very applicable five ways that are. So I'll, need, I'll list the five and then we'll unpack them. So the first one, little harmless lies. The first one. The second one, twisting the truth, exaggerating the truth, um, deceptive partial truths, kind of put those together. The third one, prejudice. 
Uh, the fourth one, duplicity. And the last one is not keeping promises. So let's, let's, let's talk about them a bit. So little harmless lies, right? The first one, there are a couple of these. The first one, polite lies, right? A polite lie. Here's an example of a polite lie. So think of a social commitment. People, people, you see this all the time. Oh, wow. Can we get together this week? I want to, like, grab dinner. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm probably really busy this week, but let me, let me check my schedule. Let me be get back to you. Um, translation. You don't really want to spend time with this person, but you're just sort of using that as, like, a, oh, I'm, I might be busy, right? Like, it's more polite to just say that than to say, honestly, I don't want to spend time with you, right? I mean, so... <laughs> It's a polite lie, right? It's a polite lie. Um, another good one. A, euphemisms. This is great. So this is a definition I got from grammarbook.com. I love it. It says, a euphemism is a lullaby, a sedative, a velvet glove enfolding reality's iron fist. Um, so this is a good example of euphemism. This is one example I had. So my dad died in 2018. And... I think last year, for some reason, I guess maybe some of the stuff we were talking about, my kids had a lot of questions. You know, they see their grandparents on prayer side, they see my mom on the phone, but they don't see my dad. So they start asking me questions. So my first response was, you know, my dad is in heaven with God. Okay, cool. Because I'm trying to avoid the whole my dad is dead conversation. And this, they keep pressing me with this for, I want to say, weeks and weeks and weeks. Zach was four, Nora was two at a time, pressing me. Eventually, one day, they looked at me and they said, is your dad dead? I was like, um, yeah. And then we started having real conversations about it. But it's interesting because they kept pressing me. And I mean, it was for months and months this was going on. Not as much this year, but it was just going on. And I think they're processing so many things. And we're having all these existential conversations in the morning, brushing teeth, eating breakfast, driving to school. I'm like, why don't you just ask your mom these things? Like, stuff like, you know, like no. But it was interesting. That's a sort of a soft example, right, what I was trying to protect. Here's an example on the negative side. So some of you might know this. If not, you could Google it. But in 2010 or so, uh, the, the Texas uh, Board of Educators, right, they made the news. They made national news for something. So they proposed some changes to the social studies curriculum in Texas. And one of the changes is they, they wanted to remove and replace the word slave trade in all the textbooks, and they wanted to replace it with Atlantic Triangular Trade. Why? Well, the goal was to sort of downplay slavery and maybe the role that some places, some states, some countries played in it. But a simple wordplay, right? Atlantic Triangular Trade is kind of what slavery was referred to back then in about 100 years ago. That's what they wanted to say now in the textbook. So they got pushback, obviously, and people were like, no, that's, that's, that's not appropriate. We need to talk about it. Um, so that's an example of a euphemism that's you know, negative, right? Uh, another good one is word inflation. So this is word inflation. Everything is amazing, like the Lego song. Everything is awesome. Like, everything is great. Life is awesome. Life is the best, right? And, and we're in the world of social media. So we post all the highlights. You know, my life is the best. My life is this. I go all in these, go to these places. Awesome. Life is great. When in reality, sometimes it's not. And we don't talk about it, right? In a regular day-to-day -day scenario, it might play out like, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Life is great. Life is grand. I'm, I'm fine. When in reality, maybe um, you're not doing so good. Maybe you had a rough week. Maybe um. You were wrestling with negative thoughts, and you were feeling depressed, and you could really use a, a brother or sister to pray for you, but it's, 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 you're more comfortable putting on a brave face, right, than being vulnerable. So you kind of tell this lie, like, no, nah, everything's good. Life is good. So those are, those are some, some um, harmless lies, but are anything but harmless, right? And bottom line is lies demean and deny dignity. 
And every little lie that justifies the means, it demeans someone and it takes away their dignity. Even sometimes your own, based on the lie you're telling, right? So application point here is be honest. Uh, the next one, twisting the truth, exaggerating the truth, um, deceptive partial truth. So this is a good one, right? I feel like this is very, this is something I was taught as a part of any client-facing role I had in corporate America. Somehow there's this unwritten rule, you cannot tell a client bad news. It has to be positive, it has to be good news. So I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I worked for an IT consulting company. And you know, we had a couple hundred clients. So they pay us to take care of the IT, support, IT needs, and you know, they call in, they put tickets in, we resolve the tickets. On a Monday, generally when things break, which is always what happens on Mondays, um, your tickets get prioritized. Because maybe there's a, a practice that you know, they, they have no internet access, and they can't check in patients, or they can't work at all, they can't function, they can't see patients. Or um, you have a person who can't run a, a report, it's not looking the way they like. So that's a lower priority. So we had this happen. It's a Monday, and the, the person who report called, and you know, obviously we didn't work on his ticket. Next day, he called back. I had the privilege of answering the phone. So it's been a day or so he didn't you know, hear back. And I tell my manager, uh, I'll call him Bob for this example. Bob, um, you know, Michael's on the phone. He's asking about the report. Like, what do we say? What should I tell him? Here's what my manager said. Say this to him. Say, we've not been able to reach support. We've been unable to reach support. I was like, okay, I'll say that. Bob, uh, we haven't called support yet. Okay. I got yelled at by the client, right? Like, you didn't call support yet? And then my, when I finished getting yelled at by the client, my manager starts yelling at me. I didn't say the same. I was like, that's what you said. We didn't call support yet. That's the truth. It's like, I never said that. I told you to say we were unable to reach support. I'm like, what's the difference? This is the difference. He wanted me to tread the needle along the line of gray. So if I say we're unable to reach, we were, we, we were unable to reach support, it almost implies that we tried and we didn't, and maybe we're waiting to hear back, as opposed to we just didn't call at all. It's like, what? And that, that type of speak is so prevalent, I think, in the world of client-facing corporate America that um, it, it just rubs off on you, right, and all your emails and so on. Uh, another one, so the application point here is be straightforward, right? Another good one here is the, 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 third, the third bare falsehood in this example I wanted to go through is prejudice. Uh, it's obviously a, a, a hot topic in the world today for good reason. Um, and it's just, uh, prejudice is assuming that someone is the way that all those people are, right? Um, and it comes from the word prejudge. So it means you're, you're passing judgment before you know the full story, before you know the truth. That's prejudice. Um, and in today's world, could just unpack this in very quickly, but it can be along the lines of skin color, hair type, um, places that you're from, accents, no accent, work visas, um, you know, regional. It could be so many things, right? And for somebody like me, I've checked so many boxes, I've experienced so much of it. It's like, wow, it's, it exists, right? And Christ spoke about this when he did the parable of the Good Samaritan, specifically, right? It wasn't just a parable that was meant to show that, you know, they're good people and, you know, you should... No, it's not that. It was, in the context, the Samaritans to the Jews, they would, the Jews despise Samaritans. If Samaria was Manhattan and you had to get to New Jersey... You'd go all the way around. You'd take every single other route. You would just not go through Manhattan. It just wouldn't happen. Nobody goes there. These people are all evil and wicked, right? And what he was saying in the parable is not everyone should be judged, right, based on that whole people group. So 
is the idea of prejudice, bearing false witness against neighbors. So the, the idea here is get to know the person, right, rather than the people group. That's, that's the application for that one. The fourth one is duplicity. Good one also. It's, it's the idea of it's, it's deceptive, right, double-handed. It's, it's being different people in different settings. So um, are you the same person on Sundays at New Hope that you might be maybe if you went to happy hour with your coworkers on a Wednesday? Or are you the same person with your college friends? Are you the same person with your family? Or are you slightly different people in different settings? Um, the opposite of duplicity is integrity, right? It's this idea that, hey, be, be whole, be honorable, that's integrity, right? So that's what we should be striving for, um, being the same in any setting regardless of the audience. And the last one is um, not keeping promises. We kind of talked about this with the vows, and I want to read this incredible quote because it's just so good. It's from um, someone named Lewis Sneeds. He, he passed away. Um, he, he wrote an article slash sermon in 1982, and it was called The Power of Promise. It's available online. It's like five, six pages. You can read it in 15 minutes. It's an amazing, amazing article. It's so amazing that actually Tim Keller quotes it in his book, um, Meaning of Marriage, right? Now, I'll read a quote for you. It says, When I make a promise, I bear witness that my future with you is not locked into a bionic beam by which I was stuck with the fateful combination of X's and Y's in the hand I was dealt out by my parents' genetic deck. When I make a promise, I testify that I was not routed along some unalterable itinerary by psychic conditioning visited on me by my slightly wacky parents. When I make a promise, I declare that my future with people who depend on me is not predetermined by the mixed-up culture of my tender years. I am not fated. I am not determined. I am not a lump of human dough whipped into shape by the contingent reinforcement and aversive conditioning of my past. I know as well as the next person that I cannot create my life. I am well aware that much of what I am and what I do is a gift or a curse from my past. But when I make a promise to anyone, I rise above all the conditioning that limits me. No German shepherd ever promised to be there with me. No home computer ever promised to be a loyal help. Only a person can make a promise. And when he does... He is most free. So good. Only human beings can make promises. Only human beings really could speak. And I mean really speak, like have conversations. So only human beings can do that. And it's, it's, actually, it's actually something that, that makes us, I believe, unique and makes us demonstrate that we are in the image of God. Right? We have this ability to speak. And when you make a promise, um, it's outside of things like hormonal urges and genetic predisposition, Right? But unlike um, animals, right, they don't have control over those actions. And when we forsake promises, right, and we do what we want whenever we feel like it, and, you know, we follow these desires and urges and these impulses, we're acting just like animals, right? And, and we're slaves to those urges, right? We're slaves to those impulses. Actually speaking, freedom is expressed in our ability to make promises, right, and honor them. Like, that's actual freedom. We have this ability to do that and choose, Right? So, remember I said the title of the sermon is What is Truth, right? Um, even before I go that, let me just recap those five. So, those five ways of being false witness. Um, one, harmless, harmless lies, uh, twisting the truth, prejudice, duplicity, and not keeping promises. So, as I mentioned, the title of the sermon is What is Truth? And 
Um, it's, it was, for me, I, I titled it that because it was inspired by something Pontius Pilate said. Right? And Pilate basically had a few conversations with Jesus right before the crucifixion. Not one, he had a few conversations with him based on the book of John. And um, in one of his conversations, right, you know, Pilate makes these, has these questions and comments, and Jesus actually addresses him. Right? Jesus actually, you know, he, he, he answers him and tells him a bit of where he's from and his mission. Right? And he tells him he's the truth. He tells him about the truth. Right? And Pilate, in this moment, sarcastically, he retorts, what is truth? Like, imagine that for a second, right? When, when faced with absolute truth, staring absolute truth in the face, Pilate's like, no, I'm going to reject truth, and I'm going to go with what I define as truth, my own definition of truth. That's truth. Wow. So, as Christians, right, we believe that God is absolute truth. That's what we believe. And it's not that we believe that we have all the answers. No, it's, it's not that. We just believe that God is absolute truth, and he's the creator, and he's the one that made the world that we live in. So, therefore, right, as created beings, we could discover the truths that God has already put in motion, right? He's already defined. But we ourselves, we can't create things. We, we can't create and define our own truth. He has defined truth because he's the creator. He's absolute truth. So, an example of this is, is gravity. Gravity doesn't need us to believe in it, right? Gravity didn't just exist because Isaac Newton said so. No, gravity was here, whether we believed in it or not, right? So Isaac Newton, I mean, was brilliant, right? He was able to observe it, quantify it, present it, and even def- like, like make up and, and explain the law of gravity. Brilliant. But the thing is, he didn't make gravity. He didn't create it. He just discovered it and explained it, right? So... Pilate's retort, what he says in what is true, it, I think it, it really captures um, the spirit of the age that we're in today, right? The idea that, hey, um, truth is relative to, to my own perspective, uh, my emotions, my feelings, my circumstances. And with social media and technology, um, anybody has a platform to just define truth and say what they think truth is. That's, that's the world that we're in. And you can prevent, present your own version of truth anywhere. Bottom line, though, is contrary to popular belief, we all can't be right. It just doesn't make sense. We all can't be right. So when Jesus said, follow me, right, he didn't say follow me because, you know, I can show you the way to truth. No, he didn't say follow me because, you know, I I know how to find truth. No, he said follow me because I am truth. He made this claim, I am truth, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ claimed to be absolute truth. That's what it was. So a question that could come up right now is, is there ever, I, have to, I think we have to talk about it. Is there ever a time when you can tell an untruth? Right? Is there ever a time when it's acceptable to do so? And the answer, honestly, might surprise you. Right. So if you go back to Exodus itself, a couple pages before the Ten Commandments at the beginning, uh, we're introduced to, to two women, two midwives, right, in Exodus chapter 1, uh, Shifra and Pua, right? And they get, they get name dropped in a big way, right? We don't even know Pharaoh's name, but we get their names for sure, all right? And, and here's the thing. Pharaoh tasked them with helping him execu- uh, commit genocide and execute all the males in the Hebrew community. And they didn't do it. In fact, what they said... It's, it's interesting. They told, when he asked, what's going on? Why, why is this not happening? They said something along the lines of, 
you know, these Hebrew women are different to the Egyptian women. You know, they're, they're strong and vigorous, and by the time we get there, the babies are already born. I don't know if you've been in an emergency room or delivery room, and you'll know very quickly that that's just not the way things go, right? So Pharaoh was like, all right, fine. Um, in Joshua, we meet Rahab, right? She's a prostitute in, 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 in Jericho. And here's the thing. She, she hides spies, right? She hides them, and she lies about it, and she lies about where they are, and then she protects them, and they get away, and they get to go home. In both cases, the Bible name, name drops them, and in both cases, the Bible appears to commend their actions, right? They definitely didn't tell the truth. But the thing is, though, in both cases, the actions that they took honored God, right, and protected lives, uh, way above the orders and the evil intentions of men, right? So another recent example, take it out of the Bible and just apply it to real life. Let's say um, you... you you find yourself in World War II. Let's pretend you get to World War II and you're in Germany or occupied territory and you have Jews hiding in your house and Nazis show up at your door. Do you have Jews here? The answer is no, you don't, right? It's a very simple answer. It's not about truth, right? Because it's, it's, if you give them up, they're going to hurt them, right? It's not, they're not, their, their intention is not to love God and love people, right? Their intention is to dishonor God and kill them, right? So in that aspect... Your answer is no. Um, a more simple example that's probably relative today is current day. So many of us have been on mission, mission trips, right? Some places you can go and share the gospel, and some places it's illegal to go and share the gospel, right? It's actually illegal to proselytize and, and talk about Christ in specific settings. You're just not allowed to do it. So when you are in the airport, when you're applying for your visa to go to these countries, you don't say, I'm going to do mission work, because you're not going to get to go, Right? You usually say, you're doing tourism, right? Tourism, why? Oh, okay, I'll let the tourists in. But here's the thing. You're not doing tourism, right? You're, you're sharing the gospel. You're here to, to talk about Jesus. You're trying to share the word of God to people who need to hear it, right? So I, I don't know all the answers, but I do know that it does appear that God does honor um, his mission above all else, right? So to wrap things up in closing, I want to share a story about the dangers of being false witness, an example, one last example. So many years ago, there was a young couple, right, just prime of their lives, um, healthy, happy, just madly in love, um, unlimited potential ahead of them. And it, it, honestly speaking, it just, it was not even honest to me, you could just say it, it was perfect, right, truthfully, until one decision just devastated um, just devastated them and their relationship and just rock the world that they were in. Um, you see, Satan deceived Adam and Eve, right, by bearing false witness uh, about God, encouraging them to disobey God while planting seeds of doubt about God's intentions for them and his character into men's hearts, seeds that are still here today, right? And it causes us today, thousands of years later, to distrust God and question his, his intentions for us, right? Even to this day, we still struggle with obeying his commands. We still disobey them. See, disobeying God is what Christians, people who follow Jesus and his teachings, call sin, right? And sin, the wages that sin earned are death, death and eternal separation from God. The consequences is death. So what then, right? Well, 
The Bible says, but God. Two words, but God. What does that mean? It means that he so loved us that he, wouldn't, he didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He didn't leave Adam and Eve to just figure it out. He didn't, um, he didn't just leave us in a hopeless state to claw our way back. No, he sent, he sent his son. He sent Jesus, right? He sent Jesus to be born a baby in Bethlehem thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago. And the baby grew up to be the perfect God, man. Lived up a life that we couldn't live. Um, a life that we just couldn't do. He honored all the commandments. He honored all the law. Um, and he died the death on the cross that we deserve because of the life we lived. You see, on the cross, um, absolute truth, right, met unconditional love. And this was the cross. Absolute truth, unconditional love. Tear, tore him apart on the cross for us. And we have hope in Jesus to overcome our tongues, to bear true witness to our neighbors. That's the hope we have in Christ. And if you haven't yet recognized and accepted the truth of who Jesus is, right? if you haven't yet done it, don't do like Pontius Pilate. Right? If you haven't, and you want to dedicate your life, you want to learn more about him, you want to follow his ways and teachings, no, please pray now and ask Jesus to help you follow him. And um, come speak to someone afterward, you know, because this is the right place to, to do that. I want to pray first and then turn it back to Pastor Jonathan. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.